Welcome to the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival podcast. This is season one, episode 18, Magical Realism and Beyond, with Michelle Ruiz Kyle, Samantha Mabry, Guadalupe Garcia McCall, Daniel Jose Older, and Julio Anta. Enjoy the show. And welcome to the first ever annual Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. I'm your host, Michelle Ruiz Kyle. I'm the author of All of Us with Wings and the forthcoming Summer in the City of Roses. I'm so excited to be here with these panelists to talk about magical realism with you today. Um, our first amazing panelist is Daniel Jose Older. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the middle grade historical fantasy series, Dactyl Hill Squad, the Bone Street Rumba urban fantasy series, Star Wars Last Shot, and the award-winning young adult series, The Shadow Shaper Cipher, which won the International Latino Book Award and was shortlisted for the Kirkus Prize in Young Reader Literature, the Andre Norton Award, the Locus, the Mythopoetic, the Mythopoetic Award, and named one of Esquire's 80 books every person should read. Our next panelist, Samantha Mabry, credits her tendency toward magical thinking to her grandmother, Garcia, who would wash money in the kitchen sink to rinse off any bad spirits. She teaches writing and Latino literature at a community college in Dallas, where she lives with her husband, a historian, and a cat named Mouse. She is the author of A Fierce and Subtle Poison, All the Wind in the World, and Tigers, Not Daughters. Julio Anta is a Latinx writer based in New York City. Raised in Miami by Cuban and Colombian parents, his writing focuses on the intersection of Latinx identity and American life. His debut comic series, Home, will be released by Image Comics in 2021. Frontera, his YA graphic novel debut, will be published by Harper Alley in 2023. Guadalupe Garcia McCall is the author of four award-winning young adult novels, Leon Lowe books, two books. Her debut novel, Under the Mesquite, is the recipient of the prestigious Puerto Belpre Author Award. Guadalupe also received a Westchester Young Adult Fiction Award, the Tomas Rivera Mexican-American Children's Book Award, and was a finalist for the William C. Morris Award and the Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy, among many other accolades. She is an advocate for literacy, diverse books, and own voices. In her travel, she is always looking for a good taco place, and she never met a chocolate molly sauce she didn't love. She loves to garden, cook, read, write, and go for walks and take pictures of nature. She is currently an assistant professor of English at George Fox University and lives with her husband in the Pacific Northwest. So hi, you guys. I'm so excited to have you here and talk about my uh, favorite subjects. I feel a little bit like a kid who asked the other kids to play, and you all said yes to my game. So thank you so much for being in this panel. This is like my uh, my special subject, really close to my heart, and I'm so excited just to hear what you guys have to say. I'm big fans of all of your work. Um, I guess the first question I have for you is um, all of your stories have such strong characters and compelling themes that um, you could have dropped them into contemporary novels with no speculative elements at all. What does magical realism do for your work that realism just can't? And anybody? Bring <laughs> <laughs> it out there to you guys. I feel like I missed the last line of the question. I'm sorry. Um, I guess it's, it's just what do what does magical realism do for your work that just realism couldn't? Like mm. like why didn't you just put like in Shadow Shapers? Why didn't you just throw Sierra into you know sort of a contemporary story where you could have you know maybe worked out some of those themes in a different way? Like why go with speculative? 
I mean, for, the simple answer for me is that I'm a nerd and I've always been a nerd. <laughs> and I will be a nerd until I die. And, mm -hmm. and specifically a science fiction and fantasy nerd, right? So I grew up loving that stuff. I grew up with, with uh, that same love-hate relationship with it that a lot of kids of color grow up with without necessarily knowing what to call it. You know, loving it, but not finding ourselves in it. Or when we do find ourselves, only finding ourselves, you know, in the form of jokers who are going to die to save the white main character or villains or drug dealers, right? <laughs> like, that ain't it. Like, there's, there's so much more to it. And at some point, I turned away from that. Um, but when I turned back, it was, it was through finding amazing writers um, like Octavia Butler, and, and really like learning that we can have these, these complex conversations about power and, and still tell these amazing stories about, about young people and not young people, you know, saving the world and fighting monsters and everything else. And for me, that was, that was such a, that's the sweet spot. And so it really is like bringing in both pieces, I think of who I am is that someone who is deeply in love with this world and deeply uh, heartbroken by this world and also loves dragons, you know, and creatures and making up things. And, you know, that child that first saw Return of the Jedi in the movie theater at three years old and was never the same. <laughs> so um, it's, it's, it's really about bringing it all together and kind of encompassing the wholeness of who I am and who a lot of us are as both fantasy and reality. Yeah, yeah I totally hear you with that. Um, I think that there's that, um, there's that idea that there's only one kind of Latinx story that can be told, like you were saying, you know, those those trips. And I feel, feel like all of us, all of our work here um, kind of lives outside of those trips, actually. That's really interesting. Um, does anyone else have an idea about, like, did anyone else ever either um, consider writing a story sort of as a straight contemporary and then just um, realize that the speculative elements were gonna come in um, on their own? Or I'm just curious. I know that um, I talk about some of the mariposas because it's the one that I chose to put all the magical realism in, but I chose it because it that's the way my family talks. I mean, we went to the ranchos in San Vicente Coahuila and everybody would sit around the fireplace and tell all these ghost stories, but they wouldn't just tell them as just pure ghost stories or pure speculative. It was more of a, well, I was walking down the road and this happened. And it, it was all so real, and it was also much a part of who we were that I couldn't imagine telling Summer of the Mariposas without actually bringing in the way we talk about the supernatural element in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, I can I, relate to that. Yeah, oh, go ahead, Samantha. I was gonna say, it was sort of like what Daniel was saying, but I, when I, reading magical realism, it was a thing that I thought I could write, like more than anything else. I was always a reader before I was a writer. I was like, you know, 25 before I started writing seriously. And it was because I had read uh, The House of the Spirits. And I was like, whoa, like I can, I get this. And the family and you know, the way that they do sort of, there's um, Clara, who's just like, like the one who like floats away at the end. I don't remember. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. No. yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and there's Rosa the Beautiful, who I, in two books, have named a character Rosa. Like, I am obsessed with this. So I just kind of understood that mode of storytelling. And yeah, kind of like what Lupe was saying, there's this um, 
like in your little bio intro with me about my grandmother, you know, she has yeah. these, she did not, she would not call them superstitious. Like it wasn't not real to her, you know? Right. And like, mm -hmm. she would, um, oh, it was all this stuff in her kitchen. Like her kitchen was where all the magic happened. Yeah. <laughs> so she had like a dish of, a dish of pennies that she would put on a, the top of cabinets because it had something to do with like keeping money like saving yeah. money yeah mm -hmm. okay yeah. i just yeah. remember that but anyway so like those little things that are sort of all throughout my upbringing and i they all just kind of yeah made their way into my storytelling yeah and um julio for you i noticed some of your work was um more realistic some of the comics that i read on your um, website for you, um, with Frontera, how does magical realism come in and how did that develop for you? Yeah, so for Frontera, you know, there was really no avoiding the magical realism elements in it um, because, you know, it's a, the book is about a teenage boy who travels through the Sonoran Desert on his way back home to Arizona after being deported. And, um, you know, the main inciting incident essentially is he comes across a ghost. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the desert who helps him across his journey. And throughout the, the course of the book, you know, there's a jaguar that he, uh, you know, kind of telepathically communicates with. So there's really no avoiding the, the magical realism in that. Um, but for me, you know, genre, any genre really is just a tool to like reflect back the realities of our own world. Um, and that's really what the magical real, realism elements of uh, Frontera really were allowed me to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the term uh, Latinx futurism lately. Um, and I don't know, are you guys like, are you guys familiar with that term? Um, I'm, I'm sort of just kind of getting uh, interested in it. I have a friend, uh, Dr. Grace Dillon, who teaches at Portland State, who coined the term indigenous futurism and um, has been talking to me a bunch about uh, Latinx futurism and um, what that means. And so for me, I guess the way that I'm understanding it is, you know, it was inspired by Afrofuturism and indigenous futurism and that it encompasses a worldview of nonlinear time, ancient and modern technologies and um, ways that allow us to imagine and create our future on our own terms. And I'm wondering um, if these ideas sort of resonate with you or come into your work in any way. Uh, for me, it's it's in I'm backwards. It's in Flood City. This is a book that I wrote ten years ago, and yeah. it's coming out next year, which is the nonlinear world of publishing, right? Like, yeah. what Did is you know, the title again? What is the title? Flood City. Flood City. Cool. Flood City. Cool. Flood City. Yeah. So this is a middle grade science fiction um, adventure story, and it's about kids who are living in the last city on Earth after the floods have taken over the planet. And the very same chemical baron bad guys who caused the floods and then went into exile to escape them are now coming back to take over the last city and, and kick everybody out. So, you know, it's about gentrification. It's about um, all these different issues, but it's also just about kids, you know, fighting off bad guys and having, you know, space adventures and, and using blasters and stuff. And, um, you know, that, that is, to me, that is the, the piece about Latinx uh, futurism and thinking through like, where will we be? Um, yeah. you know, who will we be? What will we be um, in the next couple generations? Those are really pressing questions, considering all the questions that we're dealing with about right now, and and decisions that we're making now do affect like what kids in the future are going to uh, live and how they'll understand themselves and how they will fight and struggle and survive. And that's a lot of what the story that I wanted to tell. Um, I think 
we put a lot of things in boxes. You know, we're very um, insistent, even you know, in this at our big age, on on, on forcing different things into boxes and resisting ambiguity um, very often. And 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 I think we need to fight that. You know, for the sake of ourselves and our children, we need to fight the need to define so much and, and have these very concrete borders that we um, that we fight against and that really end up hurting us. So a lot of my work is a direct response to that and then saying like, look, it's gonna take artists, it's gonna take scientists, it's gonna take uh, activists, it's gonna take storytellers to change the world and to create one that will actually embrace us for who we are and not try to uh, carve us into things we're not. Yeah, I think that's really important that um, that gray area that, uh, you know, not putting ourselves in boxes, um, the idea that uh, everything isn't as linear and um, separate as maybe, you know, the dominant culture uh, presents it. Uh, Guadalupe, you look like you're going to say something. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. No, that's okay. Um, I wanted to say that David Bowles and I have been working on this novel called Moon Conch. And it's it came to me one day that I could do something like The Lake House, that mm -hmm. movie uh, with Sandra Bullock. And then I thought, what would that look like for me, you know, for my, the way I write and what I love to write about. And I thought, well, for me, that would be an immigrant girl uh, in our time, but who would be the guy? And then I thought, oh my God, it could be like an Aztec warrior in Tenochtitlan during the fall. And then I thought, oh, I, I, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of research, but I was giving it some thought. And then I was talking to David and I said, hey, David, would you write this with me? And so once we got the ball rolling and we started thinking about what it really meant and what we were really trying to create is a space for people to see that the problems of the past, the persecution and everything we've gone through is still happening right now, right here on our borders. And then um, so that this historical romance that happens where they connect to each other through this moon conch, ancient moon conch, uh, is really about how do we define ourselves in a new place? How do we find a future where we are not persecuted, where we are understood, when we, where we learn from our mistakes, but also help others understand that we're all in this together and that we have to pull for each other and save each other because if we don't pull together and we don't we won't be able to do this we won't be able to fill fill that um not fill but build a better space for ourselves in this world and so the whole uh concept is that how do you join forces and build a better world and find a better world for yourself without hurting others and without colonizing another space. Yeah, that's interesting thinking about, um, you know, building that space and what that looks like for us and what it looks like for us to do it without harm. And I just love the idea of um, sort of the fluidness of time. And also um, there's an element, I think, in a lot of um, interesting um, Latinx speculative work right now that has to do with eco-horror and even has just has small elements of eco-horror or of um, sort of wildness coming into the city. Like uh, Samantha in uh, Tigers Not Daughters, I was really fascinated by the hyena. Um, there is this escaped 
zoo animal that shows up in the story. And I wonder like what role that animal plays for you? Because I've noticed in a lot of my favorite magical realist or speculative um, work, especially by Latinx authors, you know, animals have a really interesting role, especially animals in an urban environment. So I just I was really curious. Right. Yes. So I don't, I'm trying to remember where the hyena came from. And I feel like it came from another, another novel, like a, not like a Jonathan Lethem novel where there was like an alligator loose in New York city or something. Like it was like oh, something I'd read like a really long time. I was like, I could do that better. <laughs> but um, the, yeah. So there's like, again, there's, it's Rosa, the little sister yes, yeah. uh, who be uh, believes that she can, can communicate with animals in some way. And she thinks that this hyena has escaped from the zoo at the same time that is like the year anniversary of her sister's death. And so she thinks that this, the spirit of the sister is somehow connected to the hyena. And then, so she goes out at night um, searching for the hyena. Um, with this like vague understanding as to why, like maybe it's her sister or maybe it needs some help or maybe it needs some guidance. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also, there's also a lot of birds in magical realism. I always put like birds in there. You know, I keep thinking about like what a loop, what God was saying. And I think about like my, um, my bloodlines, right? Like I come from two very assimilated people. And my dad mm -hmm. is half Puerto Rican. Um, my mother is Mexican American. She's from um, Mission, which is I think where Guadalupe to live around there. Um, and so then, you know, they they both were kind of encouraged to lose their culture, lose their Spanish, you know, become white, um, marry white people, my mom's sisters all did, you know, and then I I didn't learn Spanish growing up, but still had this like kind of connection, like, you know, like the pull back to these stories and that there was something that was really um, bringing me back to this way of storytelling, you know, and I just had a son, I have a small child and he's blonde haired and blue eyed. He's just a little white boy. You know, but he is like, he's so me too. And like, we're, we're like, I, I just, I think about his role and what, what he's going to be what kind of Latinx person he's going to be. Cause you know, yeah. he is my son and what kind of role is he going to play? Anyway, that's not what the question you asked me, but it, or, <laughs> I was thinking about it as Guadalupe was talking. Yeah. Well, it sort of is though, because I think about like, um, you know, yes, our, our bloodlines and where does the storytelling come from in us and how is it going to pass along? Um, I have a very similar background as you two coming from really assimilated people. In fact, on one side of my family, um, they hid their Colombian heritage and their uh, indigenous heritage. Um, both of my mom's parents um, were people of color that hid it, <laughs> that lied, you know, that that it, they felt very afraid to even mention and say it, they were passing. Mm -hmm. um, and then on my dad's side, my Mexican American family is just super assimilated. They were taught to stop speaking Spanish and just be like, you know, Californians. I mean, really, if there's anything I can relate to, it's just like California. Mm -hmm. um, 
But on the other hand, like these stories, they rise up, these practices rise up, um, you know, the, the iconography that was in the houses that I grew up in and the way that people made food, the way that people talked about the dead and experienced the dead kind of pretty fluidly in our lives. All of those things are part of us and we're creating the future as we move into it, you know, with our families and with the people that we know. So yeah, I don't think it's beside the point at all, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious, um, Julio, I wanted to ask you something about, just as we're talking, um, about working with words and images together. That's not something I have ever done. And I'm wondering um, what it's like to collaborate with someone, and especially with Frontera, with the magical realism. It what what visual art um, sort of influences your writing, and 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 what that process is like, you know, with with a with an illustrator. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I grew up reading comic books, um, reading manga, watching anime. Um, you know all of my friends back in Miami, um, which, you know, Miami is a minority majority city. Um, my family is Cuban and Colombian. Um, there's something about, uh, you know, like Japanese animation that always stuck with all of us. And I also, it's funny because when my uh, aunt's husband came over from Colombia, he brought me back all of these anime tapes um, that were huge over there. Um, and we're even further along than what we had here because anime really hit in Latin America before it did in the United States. Um, and so, you know, when I thought about writing, it's always been from the beginning, um, just an exploration of what I wanna talk about through comics um, or graphic novels. So um, it's come natural to me. Um, unfortunately, I have no artistic ability um, <laughs> to draw myself. So it's always been, you know, a collaborative process with um, the people I'm working with. Um, with Frontera specifically, um, Jacoby Salcedo is the artist that I work with on that book. Um, we've done a few short stories already uh, before we started working on this project. Um, the Price of Freedom and Balceros are two that we end up with three short stories actually. Um, another one called Between Two Worlds, um, which I think are some of the ones that you may have read. and. Uh, Jacoby and I have become really close, um, not just as collaborators, but you know, just as friends. Um, and I'm constantly just throwing things at him of like, you know, oh, it'd be really cool to work on a book about this or about that. And that's how all of our stories have come together. It's just me just throwing ideas at things that, you know, interest me. Um, you know, I I tend to realize that a lot of my writing and my work comes from a place of anger at what is happening around the world. So um, Between Two Worlds is a short that we did that kind of came really quickly. Um, it came at the start of the uh, COVID shutdowns. And here in New York, at least me seeing the huge disparity between the way that white groups are being treated by the police, by the NYPD, and the way that communities of color were being treated by the NYPD. Um, and that, that story, which is told, um, you know, the top part of the page is the experience of a white woman. Um, and the bottom part of the story is the experience of a young um, Latino boy in Harlem. And, um, yeah. you know, the different ways that they both interact with the police when they go out. Um, so, you know, like, I was trying to get back to the original question, but um, the, our, our collaborations are mostly, you know, me throwing things at him, him saying, oh, that sounds cool, let's go with it. 
And then me kind of putting together the story, writing it in a script format, um, which is obviously very different than, you know, the work that that the rest of you all do. Um, and, uh, and then him working on it, us just giving each other feedback back and forth. Um, so it's really collaboration is really the key when it comes to creating comics and graphic novels. I, I, it's so cool to hear your process because I just started uh, writing comics too. And oh, I, awesome. Yeah, and I love it so much. Like it feels like home in this way that prose does too, but just it's like a different home, right? <laughs> yeah. Place. But I also grew up reading comics, like I'm talking about comics, and um, it is that collaborative piece that to me it feels like, I think something about like the way that particularly like cultures of color tell stories and relate to storytelling mm -hmm. is always with that call and response piece, right? Like that, that it's a dialogue and it's not a monologue, right? Like yeah. when we're gathered yeah. around, whether as a family or whether it's at the bodega mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, like people always bapping ideas back and forth yep. and, and interrupting. <laughs> like, it can throw you off if you're not used to it, but when that like is what you know, like, and as a, as a prose writer, I feel like I'm always looking for that like how do you bring that to the page right that element of conversation that like fire of, of storytelling that's really about like being in in community but when it's comics it's built into the process because of that collaborative aspect right so you know how it shows up on the page is one question but but in the process itself like the idea that a comic script is literally like a letter between the writer and the artist mm -hmm. is so cool to me because it speaks directly to that and we're telling a story in community and I'm saying, all right, you know, Harvey, here's how it's gonna go, ba 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 ba, and then and and my artist for the Star Wars stuff I'm working on is in the Philippines. Um, so we have language that we're kind of like transposing and moving through in between, yeah. but we have the common language of Star Wars, which is awesome, <laughs> you know. And then working on a, a graphic novel project that's separate from Star Wars um, with a buddy of mine who's also a Santero, um, wow. deals a lot with Santeria in New York City, and and it's yeah. called Death Day. So it's about death coming back to the earth every thousand years to spend one 24 hour period with its only child. And this year when it comes back, the child has been kidnapped. And so all of these like supernatural detectives have to go off and Santeros and everybody are all going off to find the kid. And that's so much fun too, because it's, it's totally different than Star Wars, you know, and it's very rooted in, you know, different like Latinx communities and black communities and communities of color all over New York. And it's just such a fun process because we just meet, throwing ideas back and forth and then we come up with something and then we toss it over to the artist and then Chuck does some stuff and like, it's just so much fun, you know? And it is that like sitting around talking, which is really the root of all storytelling, no matter what medium you choose. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like it always, um, using the example of that story I was talking about, you know, the idea to have it being a mirror on each page of, you know, a white woman's experience and a right. Latino boy's experience, that right. wasn't my idea. Mm. You know, that was mm. me telling him the story even scripting it out and then him going, wait a second, why, do, why don't we do it where it's a mirror and every panel is the same on the top and on the bottom. So like, you know, that, and that's the great thing, which I'm sure that you're experiencing too, which yeah, is yeah. like, you know, it's, it's so collaborative that if you were able to draw yourself, it would never turn out the way that, exactly. you know, this final product is turning exactly. out, you know? So it's kind of a blessing that it's, you know, that I can't draw because I feel like these books come out much better. Yeah. Um, and practically too, it makes me feel, you know, less alone and less intimidated exactly. at tackling these projects too. And shout out to um, David Bowles who has that really cool graphic novel that he did with his daughter illustrating. Is her name yeah. Charlene, I think? Yes. 
Yeah, it's so it's so cool, and it and it really delves into different um, Mexican American mythology, and um, mm -hmm. it's called the Serpent's Tale, I think. Is that right? The I'm not sure. I can't remember the title. It's great yeah. though. David Bowles is a gift. He's so awesome. You guys are making me want to try writing your graphic novel. I mean, I love that um, the collaborative aspect. I love how you said call and response. Like that immediately got sort of my like, oh, I would love that. I I I was. A theater person before sort of diving into writing books and there was that same kind of collaboration going when i would you know write a play i was really open to act you know i would always i'm controlling okay so i would i would direct the plays that i write i i've never given it over to someone else so i've have i've had that experience of collaborating with actors like this doesn't feel right i want to see it this way or it just comes out this way but i think there's this there's a beautiful um aspect of collaboration that that can happen in the book writing process or you know sometimes doesn't depending on who we have as readers but i think that's another reason that it's really lovely to um make connections in our community like we're doing now just because i think the more you know even just having people to sort of bounce our ideas off of or to talk to you know about these things that we're all sort of thinking about it can um it can really enliven our creative process and so I guess um, I, I, it wasn't one of the questions I planned to ask, but I guess I want to ask you, um, in what ways does um, community feed your work, uh, Guadalupe and Samantha? Well, I'll tell you that working with David has been amazing because when I first got his first chapter, which was the prologue, I thought, I gotta up my game. <laughs> and it kind of challenged me. I already felt competent. I already felt like I, I was a good writer, uh, or at least, you know, pretty good. And But seeing his chapters come in one after another, because we're taking turns back and forth. And so so it's he starts it with a, pre, uh, with a prologue. And then um, I wrote my first chapter. And he would tweet private direct message on Twitter. Oh wow! I didn't see that coming, <laughs> you know, uh, and and he would be very specific. I didn't know that was gonna happen. Uh, you're bringing your game, and I would I would tell him the same thing. Oh my God! That chapter made made me think I better really shine because this guy's throwing down. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the way it's been. But in a way, it's been fun to work with someone who is very talented and who is very supportive at the same time and who um, respects my work as much as I respect his. So that that has been a really good working relationship for that reason. But I find that with a lot of other writers, I'm also always um, finding that they're very supportive of my work. And so that's nice. Yeah. How about for you, Samantha? I don't know if I can answer this score. I'm like just, uh, I just write in a little dark cave by myself. Um, but I, I, you know, and I have supportive editors and everything. But I, I, you know, when you ask that question, the thing that I thought the most about is my students. You know, I, um, for many years, taught at a community college, as you mentioned, in downtown Dallas. And and I, I just wanted to, I, you know, for the longest time, I was trying to write from the uh, characters, whether it was characters that reflected myself, you know. And then with Tigers Not Daughters, I really want characters that reflected my students. I, I mean, I dedicated that book just to like two 
my students. I just like made, I just wanted to like do it for the, do it for the kids, you know, like do it for yeah. these, you know, yeah. beautiful young people who I, I saw every day and had these, you know, complex and interesting lives and, um, yeah, had, were working towards their goals. I mean, I sound like sappy college instructor right now, but I do love them. Um, and so I, I, they were on my mind a lot more than, than they had been before for this last book. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, well, for one thing, I mean, they sound really lucky to have you. Um, I always love my students too. And I do like, you know, they, and they do, that is another community, right? Because we're right. in a community, we're working towards something. We're trying to like basically create this future together when we're working with students, you know, always. So, I mean, yeah, that that's, a. I mean, and, and it's interesting too, Daniel, I didn't realize that David Bowles had worked with his daughter um, my first reader is actually one of my daughters, my younger daughter. And, um, you know, she's, um, you know, was raised up with me trying to teach myself how to write a book. And so now she's such a great, you know, she's seen me sort of go through the process and figure it out. And she's such a great reader of my work because she understands how I built it. And so much of my work comes from like our family and, you know, just the environment, the world around me. And so she's, yeah, she's, she's, really like my family is kind of this very supportive writing community for me and in some ways is you know most of my work is a collaboration um you know with either that or or else my my sister so yeah the, having those first readers that are close to us but the idea of working collaboratively still I mean, you, you guys have got the bug in my ear now like that because <laughs> i have normally i am like i go hole up and hide for like months and then i come out and like get a little feedback from my trusted advisors and then hide again, but um, yeah, collaborative work sounds really fascinating. Um, I think we're kind of getting to the point um, where I know we have some questions from some students. Um, let's see. Um, we Our first question uh, is from Pixley M. She's a 10th grader from Georgia. And we talked actually a little bit about her question already, but um, she would like to know what is the first book of magical realism you read and how did it influence you? Hi, my name is Pixley Markwart. I'm from Atlanta and my question Markwart, is I'm what's the Atlanta, first book of magical realism you ever read and how did that influence you? Right? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say uh, for, for me, I was definitely raised in a magical realism house. Like my mom um, had us on a steady diet of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Borges. Like probably we were a little too young to like really get it, but we read it anyway. And I mean that's the best way to learn, right? When you start yeah. reading over your head, you step up and read the book where it's at. And and I love that. Um, and so you know we were challenged in that. But I also want to shout out uh, Greek mythology because in a, in a very real way, Greek mythology is magical realism, all mythology, right? Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily categorize it that way, but categories are weird, right? But but yeah. it is about the same idea. It's about people living in the mundane world and interacting with the divine, with these elements that are magic. Whether they're going to war and different gods and goddesses are helping them fight or hurting them, all of these are like, you know, elements that, that that's the same story, you know, and, and um, in a lot of Borges' work, or, or, or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, like it's people living this, in this very real world, but dealing with the supernatural. And I feel like that through line has just been going through all, you know, all the different things that 
that I've written ever since, um, whether it's with different forms of mythology or looking at where mythology and history intersects. Mm-hmm. is another place that storytelling and particularly with Latinx identities, you know, there's so much richness to talk about. Um, so yeah, it's always there. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like Daniel, for me, it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, I come from a Colombian family, so it's classic Colombian book. Um, really, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, pretty much the start of the magical realism movement um, in Latin America. Uh, and it's a, it's a great, rich book that I highly recommend. I was in college when somebody handed me that because they found out that I was a reader. And it was the first time that I had seen something that looked like how we talk in my house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, these are the stories that we tell each other. This is what I hear when I'm at the kitchen table, when I'm helping, you know, pull wits in the backyard. And my mom says, not that one. That one has special powers. And, you know, mm-hmm. so the, the the whole concept that, that this was something that was published made me think, hmm, well, maybe I could write our stories. And so it kind of put me in that place where I gave myself permission to write that kind of story. Uh, 100 Years of Solitude is also my answer. I'm not just saying that, but um, it was assigned reading in my high school, um, you know, and that's, it was, that was 1998, you know, Um, and I still have it. I still have the book and have the, I look back through sometimes the highlights, you know, like the things that I highlighted that I thought was like, I know, well, look, this one is right. We have this. Nice. Same copy and everything. That's hilarious. That's nice. I think um, Samantha might be frozen for a minute. I'm not sure. Power of literature. It is. I know. And you guys, I'm the outlier here. Um, I didn't come to to Marquez till a little later, but I started out with um, actually the film version of Like Water for Chocolate. Sure. Oh, yeah. I saw that. And I was like, I think it might be a little older than some of you. I saw that when it came out in the theater. I was, I think, about maybe 19 or 20. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is like, you know, this is like, this could be like my aunts. Like, and it was like the stories I always suspected all of my aunts had but didn't say, but didn't tell me. And I was like, this, this. And I went and found the book, and I was just like, I couldn't believe the language. I couldn't believe the way that the food was magical, the way that it always seemed to me. It was like a... It was a um, like a vindication of my worldview. I think I remember being a little girl and going to Catholic church with my great grandmother and my grandmother, and we went to one that had these big saint, saint statues, and they would let me kind of wander off and go play with the statues, and like they would talk to me, you know. And I felt like, okay, this this was this was my experience. So yeah, well, and then after that, I was off to the races. That's what we did. I wanted to add that when I saw that um, book and I read it and it said they were in Piedras Negras and uh-huh. the doctor is from Eagle Pass, I was like, oh my God, I'm from Piedras Negras. Oh, I, <laughs> I was born in Piedras Negras and wow. my father was from the little ranchitos outside of it. So that's where they lived. And then uh-huh. um, we moved and I grew up in Eagle Pass and I was like, this is my world. Somebody's writing about my world. So it was an amazing experience. I just wanted to throw out there too, like along this conversation, there's so much, um, I was thinking about how Jorge Luis Borges was like obsessed with like dime store novels and cowboys and shoot 'em ups and everything. And like, 
we create these hierarchies and like, especially now it's like, it can be very stifling when the way sometimes people talk about magical realism, like it has to be like quote unquote high art and like this great literature, right? But like the elements are the same, you know, and they're in conversation with like, you know, superhero stories with like Rick Riordan's like Percy Jackson and then all of these great works that he's doing with his imprint, you know, like there's so much richness there if we open up the the conversation more instead of like, no it has to be you know stuff that you can teach in college or whatever right <laughs> there's so much there and just for young people like i would just encourage them to really take whatever media they're taking in and look at how it is magical realist whether it's like you know assassin's creed or or marvel comics or everything else like it's all there you know it's a question of like what do you bring to it like what do you, how do you interpret it how do you let it open up your world right yeah, I agree. Um, okay, can we do another student question? Um, I think we have another one from Amala W, um, who's an eighth grader from New York, or Amaya, Amaya. How do you get your ideas to write a book? <laughs> it's a question for us, I think. I kind of mentioned this earlier, um, but for me, you know, it's usually something that is, you know, something that I, I I find upsetting or something that I'm thinking about a lot and that really, you know, I can't get out of my head. Yeah. Um, most of the stories that I've written, you know, are things that I've carried with me for a while. Um, so by the time I actually get to writing it, you know, it's something that I've been working with for a while. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's character first, sometimes it's plot first. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just something that uh, it really affected me. And I hope to, you know, use my writing as a vehicle to either help people see themselves or to hopefully change somebody's mind. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's different moments for me. Um, with Shadow Shaper, it was very clearly like, uh, uh, when I was a paramedic and we would ride around Brooklyn, um, you know, there are all these memorial murals up on the walls of, of Brooklyn all over, and that's where I lived at the time. And um, they, they were just such a powerful reminder of, of the power of art and just how much it can really save lives and change lives. And, and I thought about, you know, like, what if those murals could stand up and, and fight back against what, whether it was police brutality or gentrification, all the different things happening. You know, what would it look like if the murals rose up? And it was that, that was really the seed of everything that, that came, that became Shadow Shaper. I love that. For me, uh, Summer of the Mariposas was, because I used to teach eighth graders and I had a particular group of girls, that, uh, a lot of girls in one group, in one class. And I had assigned the Odyssey for them and they came back and they were they huelga they did not want to read this book you know they just on strike said they that their parents were backing them up and it was a couple of girls and they said they're not going to read it and i thought to myself, so we had a huge conversation about uh what was bothering them about the book and it really was about the fact that it was a boy book and it was written by a man for men in a time of men and the women and this little girl said to me um and what is the wife doing when he's gone for 20 years she's weaving and then she has the book in her head she throws it down she goes i'm not weaving for 20 years no matter how cute he is 
And I thought it was pretty funny, right? And um, so anyway, we had a long conversation. They ended up agreeing to look at it from a feminist point of view and to talk about gender roles as we were going to read this book. So as they were leaving, the little girl tells her best friend, it's not fair. We need our own odyssey. And I was like standing there at my classroom door and with a light bulb on going, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what inspired that book. Nice. Your, your eighth graders are giving me hope for the future. Can I just say like, oh, they were awesome. I'm not leaving for 20 years. years? Yeah. No matter how cute he is. <laughs> yeah, no matter how cute he is. That's right. I love it. Samantha, what about you? Where do your ideas come from? I feel like I write about places. Like I, I um, usually think of a setting. Think of my all my books take place in real place. I, I just kind of am inspired by certain places and their capacity for strangeness or something. You know, this novel I'm working on now that's not even near finished is set in West Texas, where I go out sometimes, and it's beautiful and it's rocky, but it's also um, full of people who are sort of strange. I, I, there's just, I, I like um, clashes of sort of beauty and oddity and the ideas of, of what can grow from those places. Yeah, I, I feel like place is a really big thing for me too. Um, my first book, All of Us with Wings, is set in San Francisco. And I'm sort of, um, I think I'm having a pattern right now. I'm not sure if I'll break it with the next book of sort of writing about places at that moment before gentrification really, really changed like irrevocably. I mean, it's a process in a city, I think always. I mean, just from the mm -hmm. start of the process, but from that moment right before. Um, so yeah, the, the, the place sort of rises up and I'm, I feel like the place begins to talk to me and I hear mm -hmm. it and then its animals start to show up and then it sort of begins to intersect with often something personal in my life that I'm trying to work out, that I'm trying to um, understand or, or, or get in conversation with. So um, like my second book is set in Portland in the early 90s, kind of in that moment before Portland also began to change. Um, so I'm, yeah, I think I'm going with the theme. I don't know uh, if for the next book I'm working on, um, it's sort of almost a mythical city that's a combination of many different cities that have, um, that have moved me. But I'm also really interested in wildness in the city. Um, all the wild things that come. Like I live, you know, literally five minutes from downtown and yet I have coyotes, bald eagles, <laughs> You know, like just yeah. a bunch of just uh, an owl came and perched on my deck the other day and just looked at me while I was doing the dishes. Uh, <laughs> I take all of this very seriously when I have these when I have these sightings. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much wildness in the city. Um, there, there's an elk that lives in the forest, like like literally that I can hike to from my house. So yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of wildness in this place, and I'm I'm inspired by that. Um, so, okay, let's see. I think we have um, a couple more student questions. We have a little more time. Um, let me see. I think, oh, yes. Here it is. When you're writing a story, do you just sit down and start typing or do you plan a lot before you start writing? And this one was for Julio from Rodrigo RC, who's a seventh grader from Texas. Sure. Yeah, great question. Um, so I mentioned before that I kind of carry my ideas with me for a while before I, you know, finally get down to, to starting to work on them. 
Um, but uh, for me, I'm a planner. You know, I'm a planner in, in every aspect of my life, um, maybe to a fault sometimes, um, but in my writing especially. So, you know, I'll carry it for a while. And when I'm finally ready to start working on this idea, um, I do very detailed outlines. Um, so using Frontera as an example, this is a 240 page graphic novel. Um, I probably did, you know, an 18 page written outline of every single thing and every single beat that happens in the story, every single thing that happens to my character. Um, you know, so I do detailed outlines. I work through a hero's journey for my characters. Um, you know, it's what I'm saying <laughs> to potential writers uh, can maybe be used as like an excuse to procrastinate or to overthink. Um, but for me, it works. Um, and sometimes I do fall into that negative aspect of it, um, where I just plan, plan, plan before I even pick up my, you know, and before I even start typing. Um, but it, but it works for me. Um, everybody's different, but uh, I think it's a, it's a good way to really know what you're doing and feel less intimidated by the time you, you actually start writing. I was gonna say I, I never, um, I never outlined until for like the first fifteen books until I started writing comics <laughs> and graphic novels, where you have to outline, otherwise it really bites you in the butt. And like when you're in the middle and suddenly nothing makes sense. But I really enjoyed the process of writing novels without outlining because it felt like just moving into this uncharted territory and having no idea what would happen. And that excitement really fueled my process. But I'm working on a novel now that I'm outlining like very thoroughly and, and I'm enjoying it. So. For me, like the lesson has always been like for writers and um, for writers, whether you're just starting out or you've been writing for years, it's always like, how uh, can you be more self-reflective about your process? Because your process will yeah. change over the course of your writing life. And the, the, the degree to which you're able to look at it and say, oh, wait, let me try this different thing now. Let me see how this works. That's how that'll really determine how much you are able to be present and enjoy the process. I find that when I outline heavily, um, my writing goes so smoothly and so fast because I already saw the movie in my head. Right. And so if I already saw the movie and I bought the ticket and watched it a couple of times, now I know exactly what they're gonna say and then when they're gonna say it and how it's gonna twist. But it's still magical when I sit down because all I have is, like you said, beats. Mm -hmm. So if I have all the beats with little tiny images and little pieces of conversation, so much fun to to watch them just come to life on the page. It's magical. Yeah. Outline, it's a disaster. <laughs> My writing is like, I wish I could because then I would probably work out better. I sometimes try to outline like the first few pages. And and so I write, I write real, 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 real slow. Like, because I rewrite everything because it never works out. <laughs> like with Tigers Not Daughters, I got to the point where people were like, I was, oh, it's about a ghost story. It's about the, like the sisters. They realize that they, their sister's coming back as a ghost and they're trying to figure out what she wants. And then people are like, what does she want? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Can somebody I, I, please tell me? I'm with you, Samantha. I can't seem to outline. But what I can do though, is after I write the thing or maybe like get halfway to three quarters of the way through, I'm like, what, what am I talking about? What am I even doing? Yeah, I and know. then I go back and I do sort of um, a modified hero's journey sort of 
if I can on it. I try to outline it kind of from there, but I my analogy is it's like putting on tights. Like if you've ever put on tights, you know, like you put in a foot and then a foot and then you've got to adjust and like wiggle and then you put it up to your knees and then you've got to like wiggle. And so that's how I do it till the things are on and then, and then, then you've got to readjust it all again and then you're ready to go. Um, so yeah, it's the tights putting on method of novel writing. I don't know that I recommend it for anyone though, honestly. I want to learn to outline, but maybe someday. Um, guys, we're getting close to the end. This has been such a great conversation. I just wanted to ask you as we wrap up, um, what is what is the very next thing for you? What can we look for from you next? Um, I'm, I'm excited for all of your new work. Uh, Guadalupe, how about you? Well, I have, uh, we're shopping around the moon conch, but I do have uh, Echoes of Grace coming out with Leah Lowe, two books, and that is, very much magical realism uh, within a gothic novel where there's a secret. Actually, there's many secrets. And um, a girl who doesn't know what happened during that week when she ran away from home three years before. And it's very dark and very moody, but it, it does talk a lot about the problems we have on the border. And That's I don't amazing. want to give too much away. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, how about you, Samantha? Um, so I'm really early drafting something set in the woods, but I do have uh, a, uh, there's a YA anthology of Shakespeare adaptations coming out, I think in February or March. And I have Macbeth. And wow. so um, there are witches and ghosts. Yay. Yay. I love it. I love it. That's great. How about you, Daniel? Uh, Flood City comes out in February. And then uh, for those of you that like comics, um, my Star Wars um, comic series, which is an all ages um, series, it's called The High Republic Adventures. And that also starts in February and it's a monthly run. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then Hulu for you, I know you said before, tell us again, uh, when can we see the comics and when can we see the graphic novel? Yeah, so uh, the next thing I have coming up is a comic book series at Image Comics. It's called Home, and it's about a young boy who is separated from his mother at the border, just as superhuman abilities are starting to emerge in him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a five-issue miniseries. Um, it starts in April. It'll run monthly for five uh, months, and then it'll be collected into a graphic novel. Um, and then Frontera, the, the book that does deal with magical realism, that's out uh, in a... 2023. So it's still far, it's still far out. Great. I'm, I can't wait to read all of your next books. I'm so excited. Um, I just want to thank everyone for coming. This has been the Magical Realism panel for the first ever Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. I'm just, I've loved our conversation and I can't wait to read your next books. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.